James 1, starting at verse 13 and going to the first part of verse 19. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Know this, my beloved brothers. We've been looking uh, for the last number of weeks at trials and the various trials that we fall into as Christians, the difficult circumstances that sometimes catch us and realizing in fresh ways, I hope, the value of trials and the benefit of trials in the Christian life. The emphasis as we've been looking at it is on endurance, on remaining steadfast, on um, understanding that there is a joy in trial, that there is a blessing in trial. And that part of that joy and that blessing comes from looking ahead to the maturity of character that we will develop and ultimately to the crown of life that all those who love God will receive. And so we've been helpful. It's been helpful to hear that. As we come to the book of uh, the, the section we're looking at now, it almost seems like there's this abrupt change of course. He goes from talking about trials to talking about temptation. And we think, well, what in the world is going on here? How do you make that transition? Well, a couple of weeks ago, I did mention that the word parasmos is both translated trial and temptation. It's one coin, and we might be say, saying we're looking at the different sides of that same coin. The same verb and the same noun can be translated either trial or temptation. And so the biblical context determines whether we choose the translation trial or temptation. And if you think it through a little bit in your own life, you realize how easily and how quickly a trial that you're going through can be turned into a temptation. And this is the transition that James is wanting us to be aware of. It's where we find ourselves now. As we face temptation, James wants to address a few things. Well, who's to blame? When you face temptation, who is to blame? Why can you blame somebody for it? Where does it come from? And how do we deal with it? The title of the message is called The Pathway of Death or The Pathway to Death. And you might say, well, why? Well, last week, we talked about how trials are the pathway to life. Those who endure, who remain to the end, will receive the crown of life. And here, James says that if we continue in the pathway of temptation, that temptation leads to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, leads to what? Death. Trials lead to life. Temptation leads to death. And so, at the end, he says, know this, my brothers and sisters. Understand the direction that trials take you and the direction that temptations take you. We also need to, at least keep in our, meds, our heads, the fact that as with salvation, it is as much an event as it is, a, or it's as much a process as it is an event. Um, it, 
it is finalized or secured at the end when we receive eternal life. And Paul would even say that, 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 that a life of godliness leads to sanctification and at its end, life. So if we continue to pursue a path that gives in to temptation, the temptation, when it's fully grown, will lead to death. The end of a life of living and giving in to temptation will result in eternal separation from God and eternal death. If you want to find out a little bit about that, I'd encourage you to read Ezekiel chapter 18, which talks about how one can be righteous and go along a righteous path, but if he gets off the path of righteousness and uh, begins to sin, then his life will end in death. And if you're on the path of death, and as you're going down the path of life, you are turned around and you begin to embrace the righteous ways of God through the Spirit of God, you will live. And so it's possible to change paths. Um, there's a whole bunch of theology behind that, which I don't want to get into, but you need to think that through a little bit. So as we come to temptation, then, the first point is simply this, temptation. Where the blame for temptation does not lie. We need to think that through, because every one of us is tempted every day, and we need to understand it. So James says, he begins with self-talk. We talk a lot about self-talk here, but he says, let no one say to himself, or anybody else for that matter, when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. That's the first thing that we need to settle in our hearts and minds about temptation is God is not to blame. Now, this can sneak into our minds in various ways, but we've just come off um, a number of weeks in the book of Genesis, chapter 37 to 50. And in that book, we made the point again and again that God is sovereign. And the sovereign rule of God is worked out through his providence. And by providence, we understand that pro, pro, by, through his providential power, God guides and directs every creature in this universe. He guides and directs all the events of this world, even the free acts of men and women. So he guides and directs them all. And so it's easy as we think that way, if we think incorrectly, to say, well, if God is sovereign and God is providential, then my temptation is his fault. And we can blame God. God must have some responsibility for now a temptation. If I had a different father, if I had a different mother, if I was raised in a different home, if I had a different husband, if I had a different wife, if I had more money, if I had less money, after all, that's all in God's sovereign control. So if I'm tempted in those areas, he's to blame for it. But it's really important as you read the Bible to distinguish between the providential ordering of our temptation and God's knowledge of it when he said about Joseph's brothers and Joseph says, you meant it for evil. God knew that they would do that, but God meant it for good. And so we've got to, we've got to distinguish between God's ordering of temptation from the mistaken idea that God himself tempts us and therefore by implication bears some responsibility for our temptation. This is the blame game. I think every one of us has played that at one point in their life, particularly if you're caught in sin. You look for people to blame or reasons why that actually took place in your life. And if we're not careful, from a Christian perspective, you can come back to God. And so this comes from Genesis, uh, this, this original notion. Remember that Adam and Eve have sinned, and God comes to the garden. He finds them. They had been hiding. And so God says to Adam, he says, have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And Adam responds, The woman you gave me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. It's the blame game. Start it all the way 
back in Genesis. That's where we begin to realize our propensity to blame someone or something else for our sinful actions. James realizes that. But he says this is not the case when it comes to God. And he makes two points. The first one he says is God cannot be tempted by evil. This is so important for us to work this through in our minds, loved one. The very nature of God makes it such that the very thought that God can be tempted by evil ought to be repulsive to us. It ought to be, in our minds, an impossibility. We ought to even say that's blasphemous to think that God could be tempted by evil. When Isaiah saw and heard and smelt and felt the holiness of God, he wrote the following, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled of his glory and the foundations and the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Paul describes how God dwells in unapproachable light. In other words, it's so bright, God is so pure that we, we, we can't have access to him because there is no such thing as evil. It's found not even in his presence. And in fact, Habakkuk says of God, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. And so we need to understand that evil is outside of God, that it is impossible for God to be tempted by evil and to try and lure his creation into sin. But again, it's how we think. Proverbs 19.3 is such an insightful proverb. For there the, uh, the writer says, when a man's folly brings him to ruin. In other words, when, when somebody falls into sin, his heart rages against the Lord. And so James says, listen, it's not God's fault. God is too pure. Don't blame God. The second thing he says is God tempts no one. And this is where this distinction between the word parasmos, trial or temptation, matters. I'm sure some of you are already in your head saying, okay, Paul, you say God tempts no one. Well, what about the prayer that the Lord told us to pray? Lead us not into temptation. And all of a sudden we think, so what's going on? James says God doesn't tempt anyone, but Jesus is telling us to pray, lead us not into temptation. So which is it? We're puzzled in our heads. Why ask God not to do what is not in the character of God to do? James has just said God tempts no one. And then on the other hand, why would Jesus tell us to pray for something that God explicitly tells us he will do? That is test us. See, a trial or a test, as we've been realizing, is meant to prove our character, the genuineness of our faith. It's a process. And a temptation, on the other hand, is meant to entice us to sin, to bring us down in some way. And so a parasmos is a difficult or challenging situation in life which can either be a test or a temptation. It can either be a circumstance that improves our character and strengthens our faith or it can entice us into the way of sin. So this is the short of it. God will lead us into trials. And in fact, he does lead us into trials. The Bible tells us that very explicitly for reasons that James and other scriptures tell us about. 
and through these trials, he wants to expose the, the purity in us. He wants to create steadfastness in us. He wants to affirm the genuineness of our faith in us. He wants to get us to look to him and his goodness and his love and his steadfastness. And we grow in our reliance upon Christ and we submit to the spirits leading us. But every trial is also an opportunity for a temptation. And if we are not careful, the testings and the trials that we face on the outside may become temptations on the inside. A trial can quickly become a temptation to doubt a command of God, or to doubt the character of God, or to question the goodness of God, or the wisdom of God. And so this is what we are to pray as we work through this, this prayer of Jesus. Oh, Father, help me today as I face various trials to keep my eyes on you, to trust your words, to believe your promises, to never doubt your goodness. Do not allow my sinful desires and my own weakness to stumble into temptation as I lose sight of you. And you see that the but in that prayer of Jesus is so important. Lead us not into temptation, but... Deliver us from the evil one, the one who seeks to turn tests into trials. And you know that, don't you? Kids know that in the home. You know, we're to respect our parents, and our parents tell us something, and our first response ought to be obey. But as we go to our room or, or obey them, whatever we're doing, if we're not careful, it turns into anger and bitterness towards our parents. How can you not let me do that? The same happens in our relationship with God. And so the blame for temptation, James makes very clear, does not rest with God. It rests with you and I. He says so in verse 14, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. It's not God's fault. It's something that's inside of me. The second thing that I want us to understand, I think James wants us to see, is that there is a predictable cycle to temptation. It's almost, it's a universal cycle. We, we might not always be able to dissect it down this way, but what James wants to do is he, he wants to sort of freeze frame for a moment temptation. It's like, a, you know, there's a football game today, I understand. And uh, sometimes as you watch these football games, you, they go to the sidelines and they've taken a Polaroid now they use um, digital cameras and they flash them on the iPads and they're all looking at a picture and they've circled where the defensive, they've circled where gaps are, they've circled where the offense is and it's, it's giving you a screenshot, talking about screenshots, uh, remember last week? It's giving you a screenshot of the situation so you can dissect it, you can understand it. And so this is what James is doing with temptation. He wants us to be able to stop and look frame by frame by frame at temptation. The first thing I want us to know about the cycle is where it ends. It ends with deception. This is the goal of every temptation is deception. This is what James says in, in verse 16 there where he says, Do not be deceived, loved ones. See, the goal helps us understand the process, how we get there. If you know what the goal is, then you know how you get there. And so it's helpful for us to just think about the end of it all. And deception, through deception, we deceive ourselves, right? Or somebody else deceives us, and we stop thinking rightly. We believe a lie, we become confused, we are manipulated, we are sweet-talked, we are misled into trouble. 
we are deceived into accepting as true and valid what is actually false and invalid. Deception is the result of the blurring of our minds to reality where we stop thinking biblically and we fail to ask the question, where will this lead? It's one of the most difficult things for us to ask when we're facing life, but where will this lead? If I follow this desire through, where will it lead? The very first temptation Paul notes about deception, he says, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. I don't point that out because I've got some issue with women. Paul points that out though because Eve herself confesses that when the Lord comes to the woman and says, what is this that you have done? The woman says, the serpent deceived me as he deceives men. But deception is at the heart or at the end point of every temptation. And how was Eve deceived? Well, she lost sight of the word of God. She made a decision with her eyes rather than with her ears. She saw the fruit. The serpent directed her desires to the fruit. And that's all she could see as though she had blinders on and she could no longer hear the word of God, which had said, don't eat the fruit. And so she made a decision with her eyes rather than with her ears. And so the end goal of every temptation is where will this lead? It will lead to deception. Then he talks about desire. So it ends with deception, but it begins with desire. Notice in passing too that um, James is pretty clear. He doesn't say if you're tempted, when you are tempted. There's not a single person here who won't be tempted today, who won't be tempted this week. It's inevitable. Temptation is part of being a human being and living in this world. And he tells us what the root of it, the root of it is his own desire. We're not to blame God. We're not to blame the devil. We're not to blame our spouse. We're not to blame anyone or anyone else. The root of temptation lies within each one of us, our own desires. Normal desires are a good thing. And they've been given to us by God. So we have a desire for food to eat. That's a great thing. But when the desire gets pulled into gluttony, then that desire has become a temptation to sin. We have a good desire for sleep and for rest. That's a really good thing. But the desire becomes a temptation to sin when we want to sleep for 12 or 13 hours and not get up and go to work. The sexual desire is a wonderful desire that God has given us, but God has framed the boundaries for that. And so sexual relationships within a marriage is a wonderful thing. But outside of a marriage relationship between a man and a woman, it leads to sin and deception. And so the problem lies within us. And it begins with our desires. And when we lose sight of the word of God, then our own sinful nature or the world around us frames our desires rather than the word of God. The second thing is, after deception, is attraction. Attraction, he talks about being lured and enticed. These are both metaphors that are found in the Greek language in hunting and fishing. So I'm not making these sort of things up. They, they, they're not exactly the same thing, but uh, they, they, they do overlap in meanings, maybe two sides of the same coin again. But you know that in hunting and fishing, you, lose, you, you use lures or you use bait or you set traps and you disguise the traps. And so you try and lure somebody out of their safety, out of their comfort zone, out of their normal environment into 
taking a lure or biting the bait or falling into a trap. And a few months ago, we talked about 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11, which talks about the fact that we ought not to be ignorant of Satan's wiles. And remember one of the things we talked about was Satan hides, presents the bait, but he hides the hook. And that's what happens with our desires. We have these natural desires, but they're inflamed by our sinful nature and, and, and the devil and the world. And all of a sudden, the bait becomes the thing that we see and smell and not the hook behind it. We can't afford naivety. We, we can't afford to lose our discernment. We can't afford to ignore our ears and follow our eyes as Eve did. This is why the word of God is so critical for framing our desires properly. After the attraction comes the preoccupation. Enticed. All of a sudden, all we want is what we've been attracted to. Again, I'm, I'm not using this other... Well, it's a hunting metaphor. Paul uses it. I've watched a few videos, um, YouTube videos on hunting. And I've been particularly amazed that um, some gifted hunters can over the course of one or two days call in a moose from miles away by just using a human call and they lure this moose so that it becomes preoccupied over days and miles to think that it's being attracted by a cow in heat. And this is what James wants us to understand that when attraction begins to set in and grip us, we begin to be preoccupied with it. And what was outside of us when we take the bait now becomes inside us. And Peter talks about that. He says, having eyes full of adultery. Now, you can put in any other word you want there. It doesn't have to be adultery. It can be greed. It becomes materialism. It becomes anger. It can bitterness. Um, uh, it can be any number of things that you put in there, but what he's saying is that everything that you look at now comes through the eyes of adultery or eyes of greed or eyes of materialism. We have become preoccupied by the thing that has enticed us or lured us. It fills our vision. It, it invades us. It becomes the object of desire so much so that we want to make it our own. Our minds have been captured and our affections have been stimulated and we have swallowed the bait. And all of a sudden we think, I will only be happy when I get that, or when I have that. You need to know that with temptation, there's no such thing as barbless hooks. With temptation, there's no such thing as catch and release. This is a game of life and death. And that's what he says. It ends in death. So we've got deception, we've got attraction, we've got preoccupation. And then we've got conception. One commentator describes it this way. The sperm of temptation unites with the egg of opportunity. As you and I all know, and you know this to be true in your life, I'm almost sure of it, that sometimes we experience a sinful desire and it begins to grip us, but there's no opportunity to fulfill it. Thank God. And sometimes there is opportunity, but there's no desire for that opportunity. Thank God. But when we get into trouble is when desire and opportunity meet. And this is what James is talking about, in a sense, as he's breaking this down. We act in sin. 
See, James has moved now from uh, Genesis chapter 3, talking about attraction and temptation, to 2 Samuel chapter 11, verses 2 to 5, and David's sin with Bathsheba. You can read verses 2 to 5. The, the, the progression is just as James describes it here. It begins with, it happened that David should have been at war, but he stayed home. It happened that as he was sitting on the roof of his building, that he saw a woman bathing. And so he sent, and he inquired, and then he took, and then the woman conceived. We got there the, 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 the unfolding of the process that James is talking about here. And then finally, he says, and when sin is full grown, it brings forth death. That's subjection. When you continue to give in to sin, then you become a slave to sin. And Paul talks about the way that sin so enslaves us that it leads to death. And what do we say? The wages of sin is death. And so this is the cycle that James describes for us as he unpacks, so to speak, frame by frame, temptation. So the final thing, I, I just want to make a couple comments. I don't want to leave us in such a despairing spot. How do we stand? These are just things that I want to drop with you. And one or two might be really helpful for you this week um, or affirming to you. What safeguards do we put in place? How do we, how, do we, how do we cope with temptation? Well, the first one is simply, I've already mentioned it, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11. Do you know the wiles of Satan? Are you familiar with the ways? And we looked at, I think we looked at nine. I've got probably 20 that I've got written down and others have helped me identify. But ways in which Satan works to take our desires and frame them in such a way that those desires lead us into temptation. Next, familiarize yourself with this cycle. This, this is the word of God. Understand how it works. You can, you can unpack this in your own life if you take the last temptation that you faced and, and maybe you failed. And you can, you can see that unfold. It's, it's a fairly consistent reality in our life. And so that's another thing that you can do is just familiarize yourself with it. Thirdly, know your heart. Know your heart. Proverbs 4.23 it says, above all else, guard your heart, for it's the wellspring of life. Jeremiah 17, 9 tells us the heart is above, or the heart is deceitful above all things. Matthew chapter 15 tells us that after he describes a number of the common sins that we face, he says, those come out of the heart. So guard your heart. Don't trust yourself to, to know your heart. Say, God, search me. And know me and see if there be any wicked way in me. Fourthly, know the word of God. This is probably, well, this is the most important one. So that we learn to not see with our eyes and our senses, but that we learn to, to make decisions based on the word of God. That the word of God is always our go-to. That's in fact what Jesus did, is it not? Every temptation that he faced. He was hungry. Oh, of course he was hungry. He, want, he, he probably, he knew that, that, that power was influence, and so he probably was tempted by power. He probably um, was tempted, well, he was tested by all the temptations that Satan gave him, but every one of them he combated with the word of God. This is why it's so important that we be in the book. 
and that be rereading it because that is how we hold our desires at bay. In fact, Psalm 119 is a beautiful passage of Scripture. I'm sure probably most of you have heard it at one point or not in your life. But there the psalmist is writing about the Word of God and the, the, the complete help of the Word of God. And he says, how can a young man keep his way pure? If you're a woman, it's for you too. How can a young woman keep her way pure? By guarding it according to your word. And then he goes on, he says, With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Don't trust your willpower, loved ones. Don't trust your, your external laws and regulations and the boundaries that you set up for yourselves. Trust only the word of God to boundary your temptations. And then finally, I just want to take a couple minutes and talk about 1 Corinthians 10, 13. For no temptation has overtaken you, but such that is common to man. And God is faithful, and he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with every temptation will provide a way of escape. Do you believe that? There's a number of years ago, probably two or three times in my life, where my struggle with temptation has been so intense and sustained that I've wanted out. And in fact, I've wanted out of the faith. I can't do this anymore, God. I, I cannot stand under this constant onslaught. I was tired of losing some of those skirmishes and falling into sin. And I felt so intensely the war that was in, within me that I wanted out. And in the course of that period of time, God drew my attention to 1 Peter chapter 2.11. And it just, it just sort of like, it's a light went on. Abstain from the fleshly desires that wage war against your soul. And I realized for the first time that I was in a war. And that as long as I was in this body on this earth, I would be at war. And that war would never cease. That war would never let up. You see, what I was looking for, I was looking for an escape from that war. I was looking for a way out. I, I wanted the temptation to end. I, I wanted to somehow think in my own ha ha mind that true sanctification, that if it was really a sanctified person, it would lead to some kind of inner tranquility and, 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 and a life in which I didn't want what I didn't want to want. That's what I was hoping for. And, and it's like God, through his spirit, just says, no, Paul, that's not the case. You're in a war. You're in a battle. Paul describes that in Romans chapter 7. You can read that for yourself. See, the gospel doesn't promise any such thing. In fact, it tells us that wrestling with temptation will be torturous. Physically torturous like grappling with physical violence, and it'll be like cutting off a limb or poking out an eye. He says that. He says it's, it's better to poke out your eye or cut off your arm and enter into heaven maimed than it is to enter into hell whole. He talks about having one's skin set on fire as you face temptation. He talks about fighting. Jesus talks about, he says, you haven't fought till you're bleeding all over yet. See, that's how intense the battle is in our lives. Because our desires are so strong. 
And so James has outlined this for us. And he says, listen, you're going to encounter temptations. It's going to be intense. It's going to be freakish. It's going to be wild. But the Bible also tells us that we can stand. The Bible also tells us that we can be victorious. The Bible also tells us that if we fight, we will win. And we'll look ahead next week to what winning looks like. And later on in James, in 1 Corinthians, we read in Psalm 119, we're not alone. And as we resist, God will provide a way. His Spirit dwells within us. As we walk in the Spirit, you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh it's no longer I who live but it's Christ who lives in me have you ever thought that a temptation that you're wrestling with is particularly freakish or ultimately irresistible you kind of tell yourself nobody else thinks like I do nobody else has been pushed the way that I've been pushed nobody else has faced this kind of temptation I'm sure of it well you're wrong doesn't mean it's not freakish, and it doesn't mean it's not difficult, but you're wrong. The Bible says, for no temptation is overtaking you, but such that is common to man. I, know, I realize that temptation is personalized. That for each one of us, we have different psyches and different emotional strengths, different physical strengths, different spiritual strengths, and, and that there's uniqueness to the temptations that all of us face, but there's also a general root or a path from which all of those temptations come. And some would even say that all of our temptations can be traced back to the three temptations that Jesus faced, described in the scriptures. But no matter what it is that you're struggling against, you may be tempted, but you're not a freak. And I say that with respect, because sometimes I felt like that. Never for a moment think that the strength of your desire means that your temptations are irresistible either. I might as well give in. No, God is faithful. And he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. Do we believe that? Do, do we really believe that? It's the word of God. And not only will he not exceed our ability, but he will provide a way of escape through it. Just as with Job, God set boundaries. This is as far as you can go and no farther. And Job continued to trust God in the trial rather than give in to the temptation, deny God. I was thinking again this, you know, a couple of weeks ago we talked about the buds training, which fascinates me. And I am always amazed at, at, at how far the instructors push those candidates who are trying out, trying out to be on a SEAL team. They know from experience what the body can endure. They know what the mind can endure. So as you think there's not a chance, there's no way, they're going to break, they're going to die, they're going to give, and they know what they can handle. And that's what they test them against. They, they, they put them through only what they know they can endure. Well, in a much more perfect way. God knows what you can sustain and what you can endure. What's more, the gospel reminds us that we're not alone in this. Loved ones, we've got to grasp the gospel when it comes to fighting temptation and the desires that are within us. Remember, I said, it's no longer I that live, but it's Christ who lives in me. It's the amazing thing about coming to faith in Jesus Christ. It's not Jesus here and you there and we're walking together. It's Jesus in me. The Spirit of Christ lives in me. We need to stop thinking of ourselves as isolated islands 
and start seeing ourselves as the gospel sees us, as part of the body of Christ, as being in Christ, as having Christ living in us, as Christ being the head of our body, restoring his whole body to reflect him and reflect his ways and his wisdom and his purity. And right now, we maybe can describe life this way, kind of like a, a stroke victim that's going through physical therapy. And you might be the toe that's needing to learn once again to respond to the commands of the head as the head once again reconnects with your toe and begins to tell it how to function and tell it how to work and tell it how to keep balance in the body as you walk along. Well, think of yourself as being attached to Christ and over time, he's going to help you. Over time, you're going to realize that he's there leading you, guiding you, giving you the strength and eventually your desires will line up with his. Count on it. You're connected to Christ. So don't be discouraged or depressed when you're in agony fighting against your temptations. That means that the Holy Spirit is there. And where the Spirit is, for now anyways, there's war. There will come a time of rest. But while we are in this earthly body, this side of heaven, we are at war. Oh, loved ones, may God help us as we walk through this world and face trials of all kinds, to not see those trials turn into occasions for temptation. Let's pray. Father, as you lead us into the test today and into this week, we ask that you not let that test become a temptation, but rather that you deliver us from the evil one, that you deliver us from this, sing this, this singular attraction, this sinful attraction that fixes itself to our desires. Father, you know that on our own we can't stand up to the pressure. And as you lead us into the test, and we know that all of life is a test, as you seek to prove and improve our faith, do not let that test become a temptation or a seduction to sin, but deliver us from the subtle wiles of the deceiver against whom we are no match. Father, rescue us from the evil one. Rescue us from our sinful flesh. Rescue us from the world. Lead us to life, I pray. Take us off the path of death. Death, I plead. In Jesus' name, amen.